All right. I think we're, we're more or less settling in up here. So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm really delighted to welcome you to today's event. Uh, in our uh, Working in America series called Building Opportunities for Young Adults, a discussion on strategies to support the newest generation. And uh, I really want to thank for their support of the Working in America series, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and the Hitachi Foundation. We're very grateful to them for this. Um, in the Working in America series, we look at a range of challenges facing uh, working people in today's economy. And usually when I start one of these, I begin with noting the uh, one in five working adults who only earn a poverty level wage. But in many ways, uh, the group that is really struggling in today's economy is youth and youth and young adults. Um, they really stand out as facing particular challenges. Um, and given that we wanted to focus on youth today, I also am really pleased to uh, thank my colleagues in uh, the Aspen Forum for Community Solution, and they operate the uh, Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund. They're partnering with us on this event, and I really appreciate their work and want to thank in particular uh, Steve Patrick and Monique Miles for all of their terrific work. Uh, for youth and young adults today, both the um, unemployment rate and the uh, labor force participation rate are down, and they've deteriorated such that uh, the proportion of teens between the ages of 16 and 19 who are employed dropped from 45 percent in 2000 to just 26 percent in 2011, its lowest uh, point in the post-World War II era. Uh, similarly, employment rates for workers aged 20 to 24 fell by more than 10 points during the same period. Uh, young adults also struggle with underemployment. Uh, many college graduates are in sort of what would be considered non-college jobs. Many uh, young workers who wish for full-time employment can only find part-time employment. Um, so given all of these challenges for, for young workers, it's also not surprising uh, that uh, young adults aged 20 to 24 are among the, have among the highest incidences of poverty, 21.3 percent of individuals in this group, more than one in uh, more than one in five live in poverty in 2011. So this is much higher than the 15% rate for the general population. That's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that young adults nonetheless bring many assets uh, to our society. Uh, uh, the high school graduation rates have gone up, college attainment and college going is, is up, and while there's certainly more work to do in the education space, um, there has been some progress. Um, today, though, we're going to look less at education, uh, although I'm sure it will come up, and more about the challenges of getting experience. Uh, one of the things we hear in our work in the economic opportunities programs from employers all the time is that really they're looking for folks with some kind of experience, some kind of experience that they can talk about and bring to the workplace. Um, so a number of employers will choose experience over education in making their hiring decisions. So this lack of experience creates real challenges, but it's also the, the, ca the case that in the young generation there's a great level of interest in service and entrepreneurship and a variety of different ways of finding a path to experience. Um, uh, youth do themselves, see themselves rightly, I think, as having a lot to contribute and even the youth who are having some of the greatest struggles, the 5.8 million youth who are neither in work or in school. Uh, think of themselves as having potential and great, uh, and they have a great desire to be able to contribute to society, and so that is why 
my colleagues often call them opportunity youths. Um, so we have a great panel of folks here to talk about the experience of youth and ideas for how to help them connect to opportunity and contribute to our economy and society. You have their bios and your materials. I encourage you to take a look. I do want to say, unfortunately, um, Shantice is not here today, uh, so she um, uh, was not able to join us. We may have a uh, substitute uh, joining us shortly. Um, uh, so I will start with my introductions. Uh, John Bridgeland, who is uh, CEO of Civic Enterprises and also chair of the Franklin Project at the Aspen Institute, sitting furthest from me. But I was going to say I, I would thank him to, for doing double duty today, but doing triple duty, finding <laughs> our replacement speaker, <laughs> our, our young person on, on the panel. So uh, Lashante Moore may be joining us soon. She is youth director at the Earth Conservation Corps, a national service program here in DC, um, and uh, has agreed to take a cab over and pinch hit. Um, uh, next to John is Liz Schuler, who is Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO and has been leading their Young Workers Initiative. Um, next to Liz is Henry Rock, Executive Director and Founder of City Startup Labs. And I'm delighted that we have uh, Nona willis Aronowitz, National Reporter for NBC News Digital, here to moderate our discussion. And Nona is also working on a book on millennials in the new economy. So she's a great moderator for today's discussion. And uh, take it away, Nona. Thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I was really excited when I was asked to be on this panel because um, I do this kind of work a lot. I do these kinds of events a lot. And it's usually talking about either um, low income, working class millennials on the one hand, or underemployed, downwardly mobile college grads on the other. <laughs> and this was a rare panel that really took both groups into account um, and talked about how we can expand the opportunities for entrepreneurship and, and national service that college grads usually get to a larger population. So I'm really um, excited for this discussion. Um, so we all know that you know young workers have had an incredibly tough few years. We see these headlines all the time, these kind of pitying headlines, the New York Times and NPR and Time Magazine, and sort of just bemoaning what these millennials are going to do with their lives. And um, I kind of took that personally ever since the recession. I'm 29, and um, I consider myself smack in the middle of you know the millennial generation. And um, I really felt like these conversations needed some solution-oriented um, mm -hmm. discussions. Um, and hopefully that's what we'll be doing today. I also wanted to say um, <coughs> that we will be talking about, again, about um, entrepreneurship and national service and how that can lift up uh, young workers. But I wanted, but usually those conversations, again, as I said, are very separate from um, you know, minimum wage, right, or, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage or trying to unionize or um, expanding interns' rights. And I want everybody to keep in mind during this discussion that those things really aren't mutually exclusive, that they're part of the same conversation, that entrepreneurship <laughs> and um, the opportunity for national service, which, um, as we learned, is sort of very is a very strong desire in our generation. 
those those things need an economic baseline and kind of um, um, a strong um, set of of economic policies in order to be possible. Um, so uh, I guess we'll just sort of jump right in. Um, I'm really sad that Shawnee's isn't going to be here, but hopefully Lashante will get here soon. Um, so I guess, um, John, um, we can go this way. <laughs> sure. Um, John, t tell us, so you've been working on um, issues of high, high school dropout and national service um, for a while and sort of connecting the two, uh, making the point that national service is usually the purview of college graduates. Um, what are we missing in this conversation and what, um, how, does, how do you see this as connected to the conversation of, of young people, of young workers? Thanks, Nona. So about a decade ago, the dropout um, problem was a hidden epidemic in America. Literally 1.2 million uh, young people dropping out from high school in the country every year with huge consequences to them, uh, to society, and to our economy, but particularly um, the inability for them to get a job. It's interesting, a generation ago, uh, the majority of jobs required a high school diploma or less, and today the vast majority of jobs require not only a high school diploma, but some college. And so thanks to actually leadership from America's Promise Alliance, and there's probably a lot of people in this room, uh, the high school dropout epidemic is not only on the national agenda, but we're making progress. One of the most valuable things we've done and we often miss in policy discussions is actually to listen to the perspectives of the young people you're trying to help. And so in 25 communities across the United States, we listened to uh, high school dropouts, what they thought. We learned who they were, why they dropped out from high school, and what would have kept them on track. And the number one reason they gave for leaving school is they didn't see a connection between what they were learning in school and what they wanted to be in life. And they wanted to be engineers and doctors and lawyers and had as big a dreams as other young people. In fact, I met this one young woman who continues to haunt me in Philadelphia. She, we asked her, what did you want to be in life, Monique? And she said, I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I was young. And 20 minutes later in the conversation, we asked her what she was doing. She was literally working the streets of Philadelphia and how someone goes from that big career ambition to having a life trajectory that takes her in unexpected places is something this nation has taken, uh, taken a hold of. The number one um, solution they gave Nona was they wanted to have experiences in communities that connected to what they were learning in school. They said, we want service learning, experiential learning. We'd even do a year of you know, full-time national service to help us connect who we are, what we want to be, to what we're learning in the classroom. And interestingly, a report just came out last week at the college level making that, making that same point. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's talk about, uh, Liz, let's, let's talk about um, how uh, these kinds of opportunities for high school um, kids and, um, and their experience <coughs> with education affects um, their working life. And, um, and speaking of community, getting out into the community and talking to young people. Um, tell me how young workers see the future of unions and sort of, can you comment on the culture? Like, do they even believe that unions are going to help them in the traditional sense? Right, no, that's a very good question. I guess those are two and questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad you're on this panel because the way you laid it out, I think initially, um, you know, about this sort of view about, um, you know, working class young people and sort of college graduates being mutually exclusive is so true in our, in our thinking sometimes. And I 
wanted to just take a minute and set the stage of who we at the AFL-CIO are talking to. Um, we represent 57 unions and 12 and a half million working men and women. And we have a lot of young people who are working anywhere from, you know, the construction industry and traditional manufacturing on up to, you know, uh, healthcare and their engineers and, um, you know, high tech. Uh, so professional athletes, everywhere in between. Um, so the young people that we're talking to, um, you know, some do have college education, but there are, I think it's 23% um, of folks in the country are in college. So if you think about, you know, the rest of the youth in America, that's who we deal with. Um, and that's who we're talking to. And just thinking about how diverse um, this generation is too, 43% are non-white. Um, I think a quarter are married. We don't think of young people these days as married, and some of them have kids um, who are you know, struggling just like many adults are um, twice their age. Uh, so I think that's important to keep in mind, and we're talking to folks like um, Michael, who I'm out of the Electrical Workers Union. He is now an apprentice, but he's an Army vet who came back in his early 20s and said, you know what, do I want to go to college and incur a ton of debt? Because uh, I can't, I don't have anybody to pay for my college, but instead he decided to go into the electrical apprenticeship and is now um, working, earning while he's learning and um, off on that, you know, kind of good job trajectory. So that's just a little bit of this, the stage that, you know, the folks we're talking to. But I think the concerns are mainly around finding good jobs and, you know, the idea that a lot of good jobs that provided security and health coverage and, um, you know, retirement, believe it or not, young people care about retirement, um, watching their parents and what they've been grappling with, um, uh, those kinds of jobs are just disappearing. And uh, the growth of the retail and service sectors, um, we're seeing sort of the low waging of America. And that's what young people are, are really concerned about. Um, and I would say the, the um, what Maureen said about you know this generation being optimistic that most of the young people I'm talking to are indeed saying you know what what can we do about this we're not going to just sit back and take it we're going to actually join together uh, and figure figure out what we can do and so that's where this network we have in the labor movement of young worker groups that's starting to form all over the country of young trade unionists coming together and engaging in their communities engaging in the policy debate and trying to make change mm -hmm. well that's actually a great transition um, to what you do, Henry, because um, I, I feel like the, um, the question about good jobs, um, when it comes to my generation, a lot of people think, well, those jobs don't exist. We kind of have to create our own jobs, and we have to be entrepreneurs. But a lot of that discussion is, is very white, very uh, middle to upper middle class. Um, a lot of times, communities of color are complete, completely excluded from these conversations. Um, and Henry, your work uh, is focused about um, focused on thinking about entrepreneurial opportunities for young black males in, in, in their cities. And how do they fit into this conversation? And um, how can how are you kind of changing that narrative? Right, right. Well, thank you. Um, actually, uh, I guess I'll be a bit provocative here. The the context for City Startup Labs, which is um, our initial. Uh, thrust, if you will, is a entrepreneur's academy where we are training young young adult black men. Um, that 
context really had to do with uh, a question that I think has been perplexing this country since emancipation, and that is, what do we do with these young black men? All right, what do we do with them? Uh, they, uh, and it is within that context that we've, that we've really gotten these guys to, to, to begin to change their thinking and their conditioning about who they are. Because we are, all of us uh, have either perceptions about these guys, about this population, or we're affected by it. If they are you know, young men, they have their own perceptions about who they are. And so we, what we need to do initially is to change that thinking. Um, unless we do that at the outset, talking about entrepreneurship and what an entrepreneurial mindset is and all that, good, all that kind of good stuff really um, does not matter. Uh, it's as if we're casting them off into, a, uh, uh, into the entrepreneurial voyage without any moorings. So we want to provide this context for them. And, and, and part of the way in which we do that is we, we start with something that we call the, the cultivation module, all right, where we really begin to do a deep dive into that thinking and change their uh, notion of who they are and how they can go about uh, uh, creating a new life for themselves. Uh, without that, without that, then they are are really cast adrift, I believe. And so it, it's it, that's part of the process. That's that's the initial part of the process, in in, in getting them uh, reoriented. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a, a large portion of young people feel, as you said, adrift. Um, especially since they've been told their whole lives that as long as you get an education, um, as long as you stay in school and work hard, you're going to get a job, you're going to be okay. And um, A, as we've heard um, from John, it's not, people aren't, young people aren't necessarily engaged in what they're learning in school and they don't see it connected to their futures. So they're dropping out, they aren't, um, they aren't going to college even though, um, I mean obviously, college enrollment has grown, but still there's such a small percentage of young people in college. Um, but even if you are in college, you don't necessarily um, have a job when you get out. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the nitty gritty of, of work experience and how it affects young people's futures. Um, I, I really wish Sean Neese was here. But yeah. <laughs> um, that's okay. um, Actually, Liz, I'm going to start with you because there's been a lot of talk, including today, um, about unpaid internships and um, internships in general and training programs and how to really um, make an entry-level experience worthwhile for young people. So um, how do you see that conversation evolving over the next few years and how do apprenticeship programs fit into that conversation? Sure. Um, so we're big fans of apprenticeships. Uh, we know that they're they're a model that works. Um, we mostly associate apprenticeship these days, I think, with the construction industry, and a lot of people have a perception that, that that's the only model that's out there, which isn't true. And I keep saying it's the best kept secret in the labor movement, which it shouldn't be. We need to start talking more about it because. It really is, um, again, the, the notion of employers coming together with their union partners um, and really figuring out what does the industry need? What kind of jobs are we training people for so that when they you know, finally do complete their training, they actually have um, a, a job, a career path lined up for them. Um, 
So I think with um, you know apprenticeship, um, right now we uh, invest about a billion dollars a year in private money. Um, not a lot of people know that. Um, and we're training young people to be the highest skilled, highest trained, best quality workers that you can find in an industry. And I think that, um, you know, I had mentioned this earn while you learn concept before, which is the key to this, that young people who enter an apprenticeship program, which is about five years on average for the most part, four to five years, so it's like going to college, they're being paid while they're in the program. So they're not being charged, you know, for their books and their tuition and all of that. They're actually being um, compensated while they're learning. So they do a combination of on-the-job on training and classroom training uh, that prepare them for uh, you know, the skills they need, for the career they're looking for. And it's portable because the standards are all consistent um, across the country. So we're seeing it not only in construction, but it's being reimagined in a lot of different industries from healthcare to um, the um, uh, well, of course, manufacturing, but new manufacturing, um, the aerospace industry, very high tech. Boeing has a great example of a program um, that really, um, you know, people actually need trigonomics for. So um, these aren't just, you know, a lot of people think apprenticeship is if you didn't graduate from college, then you go to the apprenticeship. It's actually, in some ways, we're seeing a lot of college graduates entering apprenticeship because they haven't been able to find jobs. Uh, out of college. Um, but I think what's really missing in the conversation here is the idea of investment in our young people, in training, in workforce development, and that once upon a time, uh, employers actually invested in their workforce. They did training. Um, but as the competitive pressures have come to bear in our economy, they've started shedding that cost more and more to either nonprofits or the government or and so um, we're seeing less and less of that um, in, our, in our economy. And so we would be big advocates of you know, getting back to that notion of investing in your workforce. Um, and this idea of the, the internship, as you raised earlier, um, you know, kind of is a part of that conversation as well, because I think employers are now uh, also shifting um, more and more of those costs on parents, right? Because they're hiring. Um, kids that are in college to do work that they're not compensated for um, that really should be part of this notion of the training and investment of our future workforce. Um, so we kind of believe that if you work, you should get paid, um, even though it is a great way to gain experience. Um, but it also is very limiting because not everyone can work for free, right? Um, they're struggling under debt when, when they're in school. How are you going to pay off your debt if you're not earning money? And it's kind of a vicious cycle. So, um, you know, we're, we're big fans of things like apprenticeship that actually can um, provide, you know, a financial base for young people as they prepare to enter the workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the last several decades, there's been this um, emergence of a tradition of, well, you just have to do this unpaid internship. And mostly it's you know, shit work. It's like what you'd be doing if you're in an entry-level job. But there's also this um, power. <laughs> Why is that so funny? <laughs> it's true. It's shift work, right? Oh, right. Shift work, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Any other way to put it? Right. right. Um, but there's uh. also kind of this parallel tradition um, that's that's really accelerated in the last several decades of uh, national service, um, and that's the kind of work that that doesn't feel like 
drudge work, I'll say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, John, I, I wanted to ask, you know, how, how does doing things like City Corps and the Peace Corps um, affect young people's work trajectory, and how can we sort of make that model more accessible for kids who don't necessarily go to college, because after all, that's usually uh, the kids who are doing it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful shift, I think, to, <laughs> to national service. How many have actually done a year of full-time national service, public service, or military service? in this room, interestingly, about half. So the goal of this Franklin project at the Aspen Institute that Elliot Gerson and Walter and uh, General McChrystal came back from um, commanding troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and said for the first time in history, less than 1% of Americans are serving in our nation's military, leading to the complacent assumption that serving the country is somebody else's job, right. and called for large-scale civilian national service. And there are people like Mackenzie Ritz, who, are, uh, who were in uh, Teach for America for eight years, now working day in and day out, to make the realization of a service year for every 18 to 28-year-old a common expectation and opportunity in America, and a civic rite of passage that gives you this big transformative experience that changes your life trajectory forever. And I think what's interesting related to this conversation is that we're actually working with Lumina to look at how a person's service year experience at City Year, or Teach for America, or Habitat for Humanity, or if Lashante Moore comes in time in the Earth Conservation Corps, how that actually translates into a pipeline to employment. So imagine doing that service year and then getting college credit. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're in a Youth Conservation Corps and you're also taking online courses on environmental stewardship. And at the end of your service year, you get course credit college you want to go to for that service year, making college more affordable, hopefully college completion more common, and then an entryway into a job. We're also looking at how do you translate that service year into a credential that employers value. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you serve in the Peace Corps like Maureen Conway did, she would actually have a hiring preference in the federal government. That's quite an incentive to get people to do service in the first place, but then it's a pipeline to something. National service cannot be a dead-end street. And so I think what's, what's compelling about the Franklin Project is this vision that we'll get a million young people opportunities every single year on par with the million who are in active duty in our nation's military. But then that will translate into a pipeline of getting to and through college and then into jobs that match the very skills within which you've served. And interestingly, and I know it's about all, our vision is for all, but these opportunity youth, the disconnected youth, the 6.7 million 16 to 24-year-old Melody Barnes and Monique and so many at Aspen are working so hard to do so much for every day, 70% of them said that they wanted to serve their country, and only 3% are. And that's like a, you know, a generation of idealism and talent needlessly lost or pushed away. And so we need to, to do more as a country, to your point, Liz, to invest in our young people in addition to apprenticeships, which the MIT and other studies shows are wildly effective at skilling up our workforce, um, we need to serve up our, our workforce and our create a college-going culture that creates incentives that pulls these young people. By the way, I'll close with this. There are 582,000 millennials who want to serve in AmeriCorps for only 40,000 full-time slots. 150,000 people like Maureen Conley who want to sign up for the, who are signing up for the Peace Corps and only 8,000 positions every year. We can do better as a country 
um, for this very low-cost solution to, to skill up our young people. Well, it's funny because um, both you and Liz are, are, have talked about an investment, talked about a pipeline. Um, and Henry, I kind of see your work as simultaneously creating that pipeline for young black males who, as you said, we've struggled to figure out what to do with for <laughs> right, the past right. couple of centuries. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, it's kind of not relying on that traditional pipeline. It's kind of exactly. saying, it's kind of saying, well, you know, you don't have to um, necessarily go through all of these traditional steps. You should just kind of do it yourself. Can you comment on on that tension? Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't see it as tension at well, all. Not tension. Uh, yeah. I, actually, <laughs> yeah. There, there is um, uh, given the fact that we have um, an array of problems, if you will, problems that are, are, are itching to be solved. The classic entrepreneur is one who thinks about problem is opportunity. So what we want to do is to take these young guys who are, who've got this pent-up innovation and creativity and ingenuity and uh, release them, right? train them, uh, we, actually, the, the training is a 15-week is, is a boot camp, so we're not talking about cranking out junior MBAs or anything of that sort. But, but what we want to do is to, to give them baseline core ca capabilities and capacity and then turn them loose into the marketplace and let's see whether or not the market you know, uh, responds favorably to these ideas that they that they have. So one of the things we've been asking them to do, and by the way, we're, we've wrapped up our first cohort. Um, guys are going to be pitching their business plans and, and, uh, and competing for incubation slots uh, tomorrow and, and Wednesday. But one of the things that we've been asking them to do is to take a look at some of the, uh, the problems that we experience here in this country and, 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 and come up with some interesting approaches that have you think this problem all the way through. Don't just look at it um, uh, as you typically look at a problem, but look at it entrepreneurially. And that, that requires um, bringing to bear that sort of creativity that they have. So I see that the, the, the opportunities that, that, um, that we've been speaking of here as sort of dovetailing, in, in, particularly, in, in particular, when we talk about apprenticeships, all right, I see uh, entrepreneurial training as, as, as an apprenticeship program, essentially. Mm -hmm. all right? I see this as part of a new workforce development thrust of the 21st century. Instead of just looking at employing folks or uh, looking at hiring interns, let's look at taking this, this uh, creative uh, dynamic and applying it entrepreneurially. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just going to ask you a quick follow-up because I see, I, see on my, oh, you're right. um, I see on my paper that we're, we're up to the challenges portion of the evening. Um, and, you know, the first, the first feeling that I have when you say, let's take these young people and release them to the market, you know, that's a highly volatile model. And that's traditionally sort of the opposite of what, you know, it's the reason why unions exist, basically, to sort of not put workers at the mercy of this model. Um, and failure rates are, you know, pretty high among small businesses. And, you know, how, how can we um, shield 
um, how, how, can, how can you sort of offset that possibility and make sure um, that, that these kids are being successful? Well, um, and then I'll get to you. <laughs> <laughs> Exhibit A. Yeah. Well, you know, failure is what, you know, what, what we drink from in the cup of life, if you will. As, as a good friend of mine used to tell me often, uh, welcome to Earth. All right, so if you, it, you know, if we look at failure as a dead end, as opposed to, well, here is just an opportunity for us to learn from that and pivot, and, you know, how do we apply those learnings to uh, recreate and reiterate, um, we would, you know, we, we, I think oftentimes we get hung up on this notion of startup failure or small business failure. And I, and, I, and I really look at it a little differently, at least with, within the program that we've created. And that is that <clears throat> we have tremendous resiliency on the part of the guys that are in this program. Uh, they've been able to overcome a lot of uh, challenges in their own right. And that's a, a, a fine entrepreneurial characteristic, right? So instead of looking at failure as being something that that uh, prevents you from doing something and, and, and is, uh, stymies your, uh, your activity. Why don't you look at it as a motivator? So again, that goes back to the original premise that I was saying in terms of reconditioning, uh, sort of interrupting this thinking, this conditioning that these folks have on the front end. So that by the time they get to, well, uh, I've designed this, this business model all right, and I now want to introduce it into the market. They're, they're, they have a different approach, a different thinking as it, as it relates to uh, this notion of failure. So I think that, you know, what we tell them is fail, but fail fast. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, so I just wanted to um, introduce our newest guest, our pinch hitter. Her name is um, Lashante Moore. She's the youth director for the Earth Conservation Corps. Um, thank you for coming in such short notice. And let me just fill you in real quick. We've been talking pretty theoretically about, um, about how um, investing in our, work, our young workforce <laughs> and how um, creating a pipeline for them can um, really help us combat some of the challenges that we've seen post-recession. Um, and really the last several decades. Um, and I kind of, I wanted to ask you about your personal experience because um, you come um, from a set of very difficult circumstances as I've heard today and um, I'm, I'm wondering what the role of um, the so-called pipeline or mentorship or community programs, what role that has um, played in, in your life in becoming Success, you know, a, a young worker. Okay, basically. Um, well, first, <coughs> hello everyone. Excuse my lateness. Um, first, I want to say that um, I guess the role that community involvement um, and programming is responsible for my life today. Um, and I, I say that uh, with great respect for all community programs that are designed to help young people. When I came to Earth Conservation Corps, I was, um, I think I was 20, I was 20 years old. I had dropped out of high school. I had two small children. And I 
felt like I did not have any other options. And when I got there, I heard about it, you know, just from the community members and some friends. And my goal was just to get a GED. They said they have a GED program. Now, yes, I could have went back to school and gotten a GED or gotten a high school diploma. However, I had these two small kids. And how am I going to take care of the kids and go to school and provide for them? And Earth Conservation Corps covered all of those needs at that time. Um, it wasn't a lot of money. It was a, it was a small stipend, but it was enough for me to maintain because I was living at home. So it was enough for me to maintain. I was able to finish my education. And, and I, I'll tell anybody when I first went there, I didn't care about the Anacostia River. I did not care about any type of pollution, any type of anything. It was not, that was not on my mind. Um, if you would have said, oh, you're going to be jumping in the river and you're going to be on boats and birds, and, and I, I would have been like, no, not, not me, you know. And once I got there, um, though I was there just for the GED and for the, the money that I could earn, um, once I got involved, it, it switched my whole mindset around. And so now my life is Everything in my life is based on what I learned from Earth Conservation Corps. My life's path switched. I could have went, you know, I could have just said, you know what, I'm just going to give up. You know, I, I'm just going to not worry about how I'm going to take care of the kids and not worry about school and not worry about anything. But when I got there, not only did it open my eyes to the community around me, um, the parts that I didn't see, but it also helped me to learn that you only, get, you only get out what you put in. And so now I make it my mission to put in just as much as I got out. You know, no, I'm not um, a millionaire or thousandaire or anything. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm rich in, in the knowledge that I gained from them. I'm rich in my community. Um, I'm always thankful that I had that that path to go down. And it's important that um, the young people that come behind me have that same path. Um, it's not, it's, no, they're not going to come because they love the environment. They're not. They're not going to come because, um, because they are so gung-ho about community involvement. They're not. They're going to come because we're offering something they need right then and there, whether it be that small stipend or that GED or just that outside support that they're not going to get at home. So, mm -hmm. well, what are the what are the lessons learned from your story about? I mean, you just said you know they're not going to come because they they because of some pure idealistic reason, which is often um, the reason cited by maybe more privileged college educated mm -hmm. workers. But what are what are the lessons learned? from your experience that we can apply in a national context, I mean, does it always have to be um, a, a place like, like a service-oriented place like um, where you work, or can we apply this to sort of a larger trajectory? It, it definitely can apply to a larger, um, a la larger group of people. Uh, I'll use my son, for example. Um, my son, He's not, he's not like me. He, he, he comes to work with me because I make sure that my kids, you know, are involved.
but if he could sit around and draw all day long, that's what he would do. He's an artist, so why not have a community program geared, to work, geared towards kids who are more artistically minded or more technologically minded because that's what kids are into these days. And you, we can use those same things in the fight against anything. It doesn't have to be service oriented. We can, we can always find a path that, a, that, a, that a, a young person is interested in. It doesn't always have to be the environment. I love the environment, but everybody's not. Everybody's not going to take to it like I did. I, I ran Earth Conservation Corps um, service programs for years. I get 30 to 40 core members each session. I end up with 20 because everybody's not going to take to the outside. But out of those 10 that leave, I find two who love kids. So maybe they should be working in programming that's geared towards younger kids. It's the same model, but just geared a different way. And I know this might sound, might feel like I'm interviewing you a little bit, but one more question. <laughs> um, so, and, and we kind of touched on this earlier, um, how, you know, this, this idea, this traditional idea of, well, education is, uh, traditional education that is getting your degree is like first and foremost the, of the utmost importance. And frankly, in many cases it is because you can't get a job, you can't get the good jobs without a college education. Um, and in a way, what you're saying is a little controversial. Like, you know, I could have gotten my GED, I could have gotten my degree, but instead I went this other route. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you think that implies for um, our kids' futures? Like, is, is education not always the, the answer for their economic success? Well, and professional success? Yes and no. Number one, I only can speak on my personal, you asked me my personal story. Yeah, yeah. So that was my pers that, that's my personal experience. Um, I'm not saying that education isn't the key to success or a good job, but when, you come, when you're coming from a place where education is in your forefront and it's, not, and it's not taught to you at home and it's not pushed and pushed and pushed, that's not what's on your mind. And we're talking about, I'm, I'm not gonna say where, I'm talking about young adults, young, young people who are coming from a neighborhood where I came from. And nine times out of 10, education is not what's pushed to them. It's not. Um, I'm not saying that um, their moms are not telling them to go to school, but it's not, it, there's so many other factors that's detracting them from school. There's drug abuse, there's um, hunger, there's just Poverty, poverty all the way around the board. So the last thing on their mind is, let me go, let me go do this book report. When you're hungry, you're not thinking about a book report. So that those that's the population that I can that I can speak to because that's the population that I came from. So at that time, that was my choice because it was either go to school during the day and figure out how to put a pamper on my daughter or how to you know, have a meal or would take this program and I'll have this money to do this while I'm getting my GED, while I'm learning the skill. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I can only speak to the population that, I'm, that I came from. Um, school is not always the forefront. You have a lot of young, young adults who are coming from a place where their moms were, their moms were on drugs. So they never gave them the motivation to go to school. They didn't, they didn't care, you know. You have, you have kids who are, had learning disabilities, 
but never got never it never got noticed because no one really paid that much attention so they think they can't go to school once you get into this program like with earth conservation Corps, for example while you're in the program and you're learning you're getting you're getting service hours when i was in a program you got a scholarship and you can use it to go to college once you're finished yeah. and so many people including me use that scholarship money to go back to school so it's not, I'm not saying forget school and don't think about it. I'm saying attend to the needs that are the most important at that time. And at that time, my needs were, let me take care of my two children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. John, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just want to first thank for Lashante for showing up last minute uh, as a substitute. <laughs> it's, it's an extraordinary journey. I called our chair, who happened to be in Africa. And he called Lashante at her cell phone, and, and you're here. So that, that's, that's a network. Um, I also want to say Henry Rocks, in terms of what he talks about and like cultivating this sensibility that, that you just talked so eloquently about, Lashante, of, of having a lifeline and a sense of agency. I, I can't tell you the number of young people I've seen who've had these experiences, whether it's going into national service, or maybe it's an apprenticeship, or maybe it's in a, the Southwire program uh, down in Georgia, um, where these young people who have extraordinary challenges all of a sudden find themselves in a really big experience, like Lashante did. And at the same time, you know, a living allowance, um, an ability to put food on the table, and then connecting to something that makes them not view themselves as like problems to be solved. Right but his p potential to be unleashed. Mm -hmm. And maybe it wasn't the environment or, or uh, addressing the dropout issue or building uh, homes in low-income areas that get them there. But once they're there and they've got a bit of a lifeline of support, um, something captures them. And, and I'll just say that I think the more effective programs like Earth Conservation Corps, Youth Build, Bill Strickland's Manchester Bidwell, the mm -hmm. Career Pathways Program in your home state of Oregon, again and again and again, take this holistic approach of we cultivate the young person with love and support. Our high school dropouts told us their, their expectations for themselves were far higher than most of the adults around them. Yeah, absolutely. Second, they um, provide these integrated supports across systems to give them what they need, whether it's a hot meal or a living stipend or some kind of support. But then they go beyond that and give them opportunities in education and job training and even apprenticeships that connect them something that puts them on a path building off their interests to, to something really quite successful. And I just want to end by saying this core of Earth Conservation Corps members led by Lashante took the highly polluted Anacostia River and the DTT movement that had basically eliminated the bald eagle, our nation's symbol from the nation's capital. And it was this core of young people who brought the bald eagle back to the nation's capital, and we're blessed in being able to see it because of her. I mean, that's a big contribution to our country, and I just had to call it out. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I actually wanted to um, bounce off of that, Liz, and ask you about work, young workers' investment in the future of the labor movement because um, you know I've done reporting on this a, a lot actually um, some of it is more heartening than others um, and one of the thoughts that has occurred to me is if these for instance young service workers which is after all 
one, the most likely job that uh, non-college educated and even some college educated um, young people will get. You know, they'll be working at Walmart, they'll be working at Best Buy, they'll be working at Starbucks, <laughs> they'll be working at Wendy's. Um, what, um, my question, and I promise it relates to John, is um, this idea of organizing those um, service jobs, which um, up until now have been kind of considered mindless jobs that you can really disconnect. It's not, it's not a sort of a stepping stone to a career and you shouldn't really invest in them. You're just going to be there for a few years. You, you're probably going to get fired after six months and have to get another one. Um, do you think that this notion of building a labor movement in the service industry w will sort of help young workers have a sense of purpose and a sense of permanence and maybe even kickstart the future of organized labor? Like, wh how, how do these service workers fit into this union fight? Wow, absolutely. Um, it's the future, it's the future of our movement, frankly. Um, and I've said this since mm. I got elected four and a half years ago, is if we don't start focusing on meeting our young people where they are, we're going to die. I mean, we need to, um, you know, start taking a look at, you know, the industries that are growing and where, where are the bulk of young people working. And, and they're in some of the industries that are the most um, sort of, you know, abusive, I would say, of workers in terms of, you know, lack of rights and low pay and, you know, no, um, little to no benefits. Um, and to be honest, some of the most important issues to young people working in these industries are around things like scheduling, where, you know, you show up to work and uh, your shift has changed the minute you get there. Um, there's no notice provided for. People with small kids are like, wait a second, do I need my babysitter? Do I not need my babysitter? Um, and also, you know, around guaranteed hours. Because uh, how do you make a living to support your family if your hours are being consistently reduced? Um, so I think you're seeing things like these, um, our Walmart workers that have formed a coalition together. It's not a union in the proper or traditional sense of the word, but it's about young people coming together collectively to exercise their voices because they know if they're dealing with it individually, it's going to be like, you know, Donald Trump on The Apprentice. It's like, you're fired, right? So mm -hmm. you have to come together to have more leverage. And you're seeing it with uh, workers in the fast food sector, uh, you know, who are also concerned about, you know, wait a second. We cannot make it on $7.25 an hour. How do you raise a family? And it is a misnomer that, you know, high school kids are the only ones working for minimum wage. So I think um, you're seeing the beginnings of a new generation of labor, I'm going to say labor activism around, you know, a lot of young people and people in these new and emerging sectors um, coming together. And so I hope it's the future of our labor movement kind of in a new way. Um, I will mention one more example. Um, we have, um, we do some work with uh, a lot of entertainment unions in Los Angeles and, you know, Hollywood, it kind of, you have these pictures come to mind. Well, there's actually a group of dancers that work in the music video industry that were not necessarily covered by any contracts and they weren't, didn't have access to the protections that a lot of their um, Hollywood counterparts did. And so they decided to form an alliance called the Dancers Alliance so that they could figure out ways to have safety protections when they're shooting these videos. And, 
you know, when you're covered in blue paint and glitter, you know, do you get a rest break? And how does, what does that look like? And, you know, the long hours that they're working sometimes on these shoots. Um, so the, the biggest victory to them was to finally get a first contract where some of the stuff was spelled out in writing and they leveraged that by coming together um, in, in a collective way, lifting their voices up together. Yeah, I think the entertainment industry um, is a hopeful model, although not entirely the same, because that's in some ways much more skilled labor right. than some of this more automated labor. So, I mean, the fast food and service unions have a giant challenge ahead of them, but I think the first step yeah. is getting their workers invested in their jobs. Sure. Um, so we have a, just a few minutes before I'm going to take questions, and I guess this question is for everybody. Um, we'll start with Henry and go this way. Um, let's talk about policy. I mean, we've, <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking about all these scenarios that we wish could happen on a national scale. Um, how do we do that? I mean, I, I, I want to um, ask each of you what you think the most important um, policy is for uh, young workers today, especially um, in context of your work? Right. <clears throat> well, uh, I said this before. I think that uh, entrepreneurship, in some respects, is uh, the workforce is workforce development for the 21st century. I, and and what I mean by that essentially is that it needs to be part of the puzzle. Right? When we look at workforce development uh, policies. Uh, typically, they're oriented towards um, employment uh, in training and uh, getting people to have uh, workable skills, if you will, or employable skills. I really think that it's um, as important to have enterprise-ready skills and to uh, be able to uh, empower folks to to uh, be in a position for enterprise deployment. And I think that should be part of the, at, at one point, um, as a matter of fact, um, uh, there was a proposal um, some years ago before the, work, uh, before the Department of Labor about looking at entrepreneurship as being a, uh, a vital component of workforce development. And for some reason or another, it's you know, off the table. When you look at workforce um, boards around the country, typically they do not uh, address entrepreneurship in a direct way. I mean, they, you know, they may say it tangentially, but you know, it's not part of their, their, uh, their focus. So I think that, 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 that this ought to be a, an integral part of workforce development going forward and workforce policy. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I would echo that. Um, workforce development, of course, investment, as I said earlier, um, in our young people. Um, but I think from our perspective, it's um, about kind of solving the problem of gr the growing inequality that we're seeing the, um, in our society generally, and just policies that will raise wages. Um, and that includes, of course, raising the minimum wage, um, including tipped minimum wage. For folks working again, we're talking, you know, not just restaurant workers, but people who work for tips are all across our economy. Um, and, uh, you know, really, let's talk about a living wage where, you know, we can actually get to a place where people can afford to feed their families. As the president said, if you work for a living, you shouldn't be in poverty. Um, and, you know, paid sick days. I mean, there are a lot of folks in our economy in the private sector, I think it's 40% that don't have paid sick days. Um, 
and the, um, you know, just in, in general things that lift up wages um, and, and certainly investing in training is part of that too. But um, I wanted to kind of also put a, a feeler out there for the, the legislation that Senator Warren just introduced on student debt mm -hmm. um, and figuring out ways to get creative in solving this problem because so many people are suffering under it. Um, I think she said 40 million people have some kind of student loan debt, and I see a lot of heads shaking in the audience, <laughs> like, yes, me too. Um, and so I think, um, you know, supporting that legislation is an immediate policy step that we could actually um, take on, um, and uh, I guess just more tripartite solutions where government and the private sector and, and labor and workers are coming together to solve these problems. Great. I would just add uh, three quick policy uh, thoughts. One, fulfill the promise of the Edward M. Kennedy Serve America Act, so named by Orrin Hatch. It's almost <laughs> unthinkable today, right? They have such bipartisan cooperation around such an extraordinary idea and provide all those young people who are looking for a lifeline of some sort into a big experience to have that experience and have it be a pipeline to college and a job. Second, I think um, completely re-envisioning our career and technical education system. There are 4.7 million available jobs today for which there aren't qualified U.S. workers. 29 million jobs in search of uh, young people who get sub-baccalaureate credentials. And um, lots of models around the world that are inventing and innovating around career and technical education. Don't, I think we've got a new name, call it Enterprising Pathways, <laughs> and make sure it's stackable so it's not tracking young people early onto a path that they may not want to choose, but give them choices that connect their learning to, to technical skills and career. And finally, um, uh, innovative things happening around data systems where we can link from K through employment. Uh, the of Florida is kind of leading the nation in terms of linking wage records to transcripts so that if you go to a particular program at a community college, you know before you or your parents make an investment whether or not that program is actually leading to decent paying jobs, what the employment record is. Right. And interestingly, Wyden, um, Democrat Wyden and Republican Rubio have a bill, um, Right to Know, Student Right to Know Act before you go, um, that kind of accelerates that. Last data point, 2% of those who graduate high school wait to have a child before they have a stable family and get a decent paying job by 21, end up in poverty, just 2%. 78% who do none of those things often remain in poverty the rest of their lives. And I think we need to be driven a little bit by the evidence and rigor. Last thought, um, there's this campaign called Let's Bring Moneyball to Government with limited resources. How do we invest effectively in those things that are evidence-based and have some rigor behind them so that we know when we're pouring in $225 billion every year across 339 federal programs to help the 15 million young people at risk of not reaching productive adulthood, that that money that's actually going to those programs that are innovative and have an evidence base to support them. Um, well, I definitely agree with uh, all three of you. Bridge uh, kind of touched on what I wanted to say, but I think it's just about <clears throat> investing more in our community-based programming and making um, service learning a requirement uh, among all of our young people um, just because uh, I think it takes the pressure off 
and it'll be a way t for them to navigate their way. Um, if, we, if we do it when they're um, 17 to 25, we'll have more productive citizens from 25 to 30. Um, and it won't be a it won't be a, a issue of they can't bring themselves out of, out of poverty because like I said it takes the pressure off and it gives them a, a chance to reach their full potential and see their full potential because there isn't so much pressure on them to provide and, and make and make ends meet. So. Great. Well, we have around 15 minutes for questions. Does anybody have any? <laughs> Sorry? Chip? There's oh. some mics in the middle. Oh, a mic, yeah, okay. <laughs> Hi, well, first, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, my question is how do we ensure that this conversation, what we've talked about, these opportunities, whether that's apprenticeships, entrepreneur, entrepreneurships, national service, how do we ensure that these conversations and opportunities are making it to the populations that really need it and don't know about these opportunities? Communities of color and Wants to take that one. <laughs> I'll take it on quickly. Yeah. That, you know, national service could be criticized, actually, when you look at the data around AmeriCorps, not necessarily always reaching uh, populations with, that have extreme need. To me, what's exciting, we're coming up on this uh, summit at Gettysburg on June 4th through 6th. We're, we're convening top leaders, but most importantly, millennials, uh, what we call opportunity youth, people who are disconnected from school and work, and they they used to be called disconnected youth, but then we surveyed them, and they don't view themselves as disconnected <laughs> youth. They view themselves as extraordinary um, talents that you know ought to be unleashed to help their community and country. And <clears throat> so this notion that it could be national service for all. And then one of the most hopeful things, a tenth of our plan to get to a million is the newly launched 21st Century Conservation Service Corps. Remember the old FDR Civilian Conservation Corps Three million young unemployed men planted three billion trees, provided agricultural drainage for 84 million acres, built 800 uh, parks for the country. Just extraordinary contributions. They were all young, unemployed uh, men who were going to be festering on the streets. So through Youth Build, uh, Youth Conservation Corps, uh, programs like City Year and others that are, are doing very well in terms of integrating populations from all backgrounds, the big idea is to bring people of different income levels, backgrounds, races, ethnicities, geographies, and political affiliations. I was at a service project a few months ago, and four of the people, I asked them, four of the people were Democrats. One of them was a Tea Partier. And I said, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, I believe, I'm a libertarian. I believe in big citizenship. And I thought, wow, maybe, maybe national service is something that could produce a generation of leaders across geography, background, even political affiliation, sure. who could then work together to get things done in, in Congress and in government. So that's sort of the hope that people like Mackenzie are advancing every day. I just realized I, c I uh, conflated AmeriCorps and City Year together and said City Corps. So <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We knew what you meant. I meant City Year. <laughs> could um, I take so. a stab yeah, at yeah, that yeah, too? Go ahead, yeah. Um, so this is our challenge, right, is to keep the conversation going. And we've been lamenting this in the labor movement for some time. And I often talk to young people, and sometimes they don't even know the labor movement exists. Um, so that was our challenge in starting to talk to more of our own young people. But uh, in reality, it's about you know, building young worker movements 
um, in their local communities to make change. And so they're coming together, not just unionists, but young, you know, community-based volunteers and, you know, connecting all of this, um, this connective tissue together. Um, so we've actually been working in the schools um, to try to get, uh, you know, show young people that there are multiple pathways to success and perhaps joining an apprenticeship program is, you know, something for a young person who isn't necessarily, um, you know, excelling at that moment in academics. Maybe they are a late bloomer, maybe they want to go a different path. Um, so knowing that opportunity is out there for them. Um, and then our young worker groups that our labor movement is forming all across the country, we hope will be hubs of activity where you know, they're connecting with students. Um, uh, you know, we have a great example of in San Jose where our young worker group through the labor movement um, was working with San Jose State on raising the minimum wage before the labor movement itself was on board, um, the young people were moving that and they were collecting signatures and nobody thought it could be done. And these young people just came together and said, well, forget it, we're gonna do it then. And, and they did it. Um, so I think there's great examples of that where young uh, worker groups through the AFL-CIO, we have 600 central labor councils across the country, are, are connecting with young people all over the place. And so that's my hope is that we can, you know, one by one by one basically keep the conversation going. I love that San Jose story. I wrote a whole thing about it because um, it was unusual in that it did actually reach those same communities. They were kind of, um, this was a cause that belonged to them. These kids exactly. were minimum wage workers as well. So I think, exactly. again, what I said before, you really have to get people invested in their own lives mm -hmm. um, and they'll see the cause that belongs to them. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a, uh, go ahead, a, yeah. a sort of a two-part answer to that. Um, one is, uh, you know, it's an overwrought term, collaborations, but um, w one of the things that uh, City Startup Labs has done is to, to seek collaboration with um, quote-unquote stakeholders in the community. So, you know, uh, when, you, when you plug into that network, well, they have a network that they're plugged into, and so by virtue of that, you're able to reach a lot more folk than you could uh, uh, left up to your own devices, right? So that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is, is that the guys that come through my program, um, we ask them to uh, be new role models. So uh, when they go out in, into the community as ambassadors, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, we, we uh, sort of defy the notion that, uh, you know, why should uh, the drug dealers have all the fun? You know, get them to look, uh, have folks look at them as being new role models. And, and I think that there is a, uh, there is a, a sort of a multiplier effect that can happen with, you know, with regards to that. So I have a question for Mr. Rock, um, Ron Hopkins. Uh, Ron Hopkins, hello. Ron Hopkins, Trust. <laughs> so Mr. Rock, so what's the next step for a graduate entrepreneur? Do they go in front of venture capitalists to fund their idea? And also, how is your program being funded? How difficult or easy it is for your nonprofit to receive funds to continue your program? Right. Okay. Well, great, great question. Uh, well, they uh, the the program is um, sequencing students through four modules. The first <coughs> one I mentioned was cultivation. Then they go through what I call preparation, which is dealing with the entrepreneurial mindset. 
Then there's education, where we get down to the nuts and bolts. And then finally, demonstration. Jesse Jackson would be happy uh, hearing that, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, so what they're preparing for right now uh, with, with this pitch that they're about to do uh, tomorrow and Wednesday is they're, they're uh, competing for slots in the last module, the demonstration module. And there they will have their businesses incubated. So they'll be in a position to uh, be part now part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem within the city. Uh, we will uh, give them uh, a chance to, uh, to match up and pair up with other mentors and also uh, begin to wrap some capital around them. So many of them are going to get, uh, or I should say, a few of them, not many, a few of them will get prize money uh, should they, uh, you know, uh, should their ideas rise to that level. And uh, uh, more importantly than venture capital, because when you're talking about these seed stage companies, uh, many of which are social entrepreneurs, believe it or not, uh, venture capitalists aren't really quite interested in that. So I've been talking to the guys about the importance of bootstrapping, all right? Get your first customer. Uh, as I said before, try that idea out in the marketplace. Do they really like it? Is it all of that that you think that it is? And then this way you can then begin to attract some capital around an idea that is a go now a going concern. Now, now with regards to um, the, my own personal fundraising, um, it, well, I, I must say that it was, it was very much a challenge. And uh, for those of you who haven't gone to the website, City Startup Labs, well, there's a, a clip of a TED Talk that I had done on there. And it was by virtue of that TED Talk, not only that I was able to receive some funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, but also that I'm sitting on the stage as well. <laughs> so, I, um, I wanted to ask, um, Wait, I'm sorry, just uh, sorry. I'm going to interrupt you and say, um, I know it's a small room and everyone can hear each other, but just for the sake of the recording, just, uh, uh, okay, now it should work, right? <laughs> um, I work with the uh, Transportation Learning Center and we work on labor management partnerships um, to get young people into career pathways in frontline work. Uh, we have projects, for instance, in Philadelphia working with career and tech ed programs in the schools. Awareness, there are two major challenges. One is awareness, which you all have talked about, and because folks don't know that these great jobs with health benefits and pension exist and they're green jobs in the community. But the second thing is that folks both in the schools and many families, but particularly teachers and counselors, feel like they have to push kids towards college. And one of the things about the discussion is that there's been a little bit of a, a sense that, and I think folks, I know folks on stage know that this isn't the case, but the dialogue is all, often career or college. And a number of organizations, the trade unions are a terrific example, have worked on the issue of not just earn while you learn, but earn college credits yes. while you learn. And I wanna, I think that's very important in terms of reaching out to the community and not assuming that folks go one track or the other, and that it can be expanded. The type of work Lashante is doing, a number of college kids get credit for that if they do that in college. The pitch lab that you do, you know, Henry, a, 
bunch of kids will get credit for that if they did it within college. So one of the things I, I guess I would raise is whether we can have a more uniform system so that people who are really doing college level work, even if they're not in college, whether it's a service year before they go to college, mm -hmm. that they not just get scholarship money, but the work gets assessed for credits, so they don't leave credits on the table and they start college with a leg up. And we've been working with that in Philadelphia and in other cities where we've worked with. I just, I, so your question is? <laughs> whether, is whether folks can, is, I know that different people have had experience, but whether we can integrate the discussion so it's not college or career. It's both together. So the idea, for example, with apprenticeship, if you go through an apprenticeship program, in most cases, you're close to getting an associate's degree. And there are local community colleges that partner with apprenticeship programs in that area that can get you there. And to not leave that on the table, I think, is what you were saying. But when we have this conversation about these different programs that always keeping in mind there's, there's some synergy there that it's not a, you know, mutually exclusive like you had said earlier. Yeah. I just want to add, I think it's one of the biggest ideas we've heard to date. And I think the second biggest idea in this Franklin project is the trans, all learning should count. Mm -hmm. And whether, if you have a service year experience like Lashante does, she ought to be getting course credit for it. And there are organizations like Kale that actually do these portfolio assessments that translate that learning into credit. That's a huge idea and I love what you just said and what you're doing in, in Philly. I think we have time for one more. Uh, you in the back. Um, um, being an African American and knowing the prison population, it doesn't seem that ex-offenders seem to be too much in this discussion. So how do we integrate them into being able to have an opportunity once they come home, say they go to college, but since they have that record, it's hard for them to get a job. So they're stuck in poverty and nobody wants to hire them. So how do they become a part of the discussion and how do we bring them in so that they can also have opportunity to get a living wage as well? Yeah, let me, let me take that one on. Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the things that I think is absolutely important uh, with regards to entrepreneurship is uh, providing that opportunity for ex-offenders because, uh, as you well know, um, most of them have serious barriers to employment, um, even with, I mean, uh, forget being a felon, even if you have a misdemeanor, you, you're, you're, you're subject uh, to scrutiny. So this is, one of the, the, this is one of the motivations, actually, for City Startup Labs, is to find a way in which we can uh, be inclusive of uh, not just um, you know, folks that have an interest in entrepreneurship, but uh, being deliberate about getting people that have uh, records or you know, former gang members <coughs> And that sort of uh, uh, the, uh, those elements of uh, of the population that have uh, heretofore been been overlooked. Um, it's not the the program is not a reentry program as such, but we are, wrap our arms around everyone who has an interest in, and especially, you know, is targeted to to young black men in particular. Uh, so I often get questions about, well, you know, from women, well, what about us, you know? But um, you know, I, I sort of framed that right at the beginning of the conversation about uh, why, why young black men. Um, just a quick note, um, the labor movement is, is taking the issue of mass incarceration head on and just 
check our website out if you want to look at our last convention statement, AFLCIO.org. Uh, but that also apprenticeship programs are, I would say, um, a great place, a great solution. And we're seeing examples all over the country. I know our um, uh, apprenticeship programs in Los Angeles in particular are leading the way. Um, uh, you know, to integrate this population into their apprenticeships. So I think it's a great path and option. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you so much. I'm really, I was, yeah, Maureen has. So I just, I just <laughs> want to make sure we thank all our panelists, including Nona. It's always nice to have a young person asking the questions of the panel. I hope you'll join us again for the next event in our series. Thank you. Thank you.